Reading is taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 46, to chapter 11, verse 25. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their hearts, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, 
if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Um, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, it's great to be with you. Um, I remember happy years uh, here at 6.30 when I was uh, an order nerd at Wycliffe Hall. Um, that, we were facing that way. That was so long ago. Um, and can I also apologise if my voice gives out at any point? Um, my daughter brought something nasty home from school um, recently. And by school, I mean um, Glenn's wife's school. So we'll, we'll, blame it, we'll blame it all on them. Let's pray. Father God, you've given us your word that we might be fully equipped for every good work in Christ. Stir up our hearts now by your Holy Spirit. Teach us your ways. Give us undivided loyalty that we might live to your praise and glory. And this we pray in the kind name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I wonder what you made of that last paragraph that we read. Any eyebrows raised? Take verse 24, for instance. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. What do you do do with a verse like that? Because these are the very words of God. We dare not get the tipex out, start cutting and pasting, um, ignoring bits that we find difficult. And yet we think, don't we, surely there must be some caveat on that. Winning lottery tickets comes to mind, for instance. So how do we handle this teaching responsibly so that we don't have it as a license to print money, but also so we don't have death by a thousand caveats? It would be easy, wouldn't it, to put something like this, verse 24, through a sceptical blender, whiz it round enough times, until it comes out all grey and mushy and safe, but meaningless. Surely means something. God's put something in our hands. And it doesn't sound like it's just a Nerf gun, does it? Nerf guns don't move mountains. And if we're not firing blanks, then we better take care. Verse 25 says, for your own sake, if for no one else's, When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your heavenly Father may forgive you your sins. Prayer is powerful enough, according to Jesus, that it comes with a health warning. I wonder if that's how we tend to think when we we come to prayer meetings. To To handle this teaching on prayer responsibly, we need to first set it in its context. Uh, These verses, 22 to 25, are actually the longest section of teaching on prayer in Mark's Gospel. In both Matthew and Luke, we get the Lord's Prayer, of course, and we get all that great stuff about street corners and scorpions and persistent widows, asking, seeking, knocking, all that sort of stuff. That's Matthew and Luke. But in Mark, if you only had Mark's Gospel and you had to learn how to pray, this would be pretty much all you'd have to go from. Mark chooses to put it here, later in his gospel, uh, after the triumphal entry, after the clearing of the temple and the withering of the fig tree. The whole passage we read starts and ends, actually, on the same note. It starts with what we might call the prayer of Bartimaeus. 
Bartimaeus calling out to Christ. His prayer was with faith. We read chapter 10, verse 52. Your faith has healed you. I had a specific aim in mind. Jesus said, what do you want? I want to see, obviously. And it was an audacious prayer against all the odds. Not only because he was physically blind, but also because we read in verse 48 that many rebuked him and tried to stop him, told him to be quiet. So we start with the prayer of Bartimaeus, and then the passage ends with Christ teaching his disciples about prayer. And again, he tells them their prayer is to be in faith. Chapter 11, verse 22, have faith in God. He says there should be a crosshair, a specific target, if anyone says to this mountain. And again, it's quite audacious, isn't it, against all the odds. Hello, mountain. Would you mind, you know? So when you have a section in Mark, especially in Mark, that starts and ends with the same theme, it's a fair bet that we're meant to interpret what comes in between in the light of that. So whatever power... Whatever power God has put in our hands in prayer, if we're to learn to wield that rightly and responsibly, we need to start by studying how the son of David wielded his power. And he certainly had power, didn't he? This healing of Bartimaeus is just is the last of the healing miracles in Mark. But we've already seen Christ's power over sickness, over death, over disease... And when you have that, when you have phenomenal cosmic power, when you can do anything, in some ways the really interesting thing is what you choose not to do with that. And in the first part of chapter 11, we can see what the king, the son of David, chose not to do. He didn't come riding into Jerusalem on a war horse, some great white stallion. That's what kings are meant to do, meant to do isn't it? Great generals don't ride on donkeys. Servants ride on donkeys. Sancho Panza rides on a donkey. And in verse 3, we read it wasn't even his donkey. He borrowed it and to give it back after, after he'd finished. So all, all this phenomenal cosmic power, but he doesn't, he doesn't wield it the way you might have thought. He's not the, the sort of king you might have thought. But that doesn't mean he's not a king. Just because he won't take power with a, a war horse and a sword, that doesn't mean he won't take power. Sometimes people look at the donkey thing and they think, well, well there you go, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It's not like he was trying to sort of take over or anything. It wasn't a political statement. No, Jesus is, is king of heaven. Not interested in being on charge in charge on earth but the thing is that Jesus engineered this it wasn't accidental like oh there just happens to be a donkey just when I needed one what are the chances and we get six whole verses don't we laboring the point that this was very much a planned and premeditated thing Jesus could quite easily have slipped into Jerusalem by the back door But he chose not to. He chose to ring the doorbell and come in the front door with a fanfare for everyone to see. 
And of all things, he chose to come on a donkey, knowing full well what the prophecies said about that. Genesis 49, Zechariah 9, the prophecies, they made it clear that there was a king to come one day. And when this king came, the, the ultimate king, the final king, the one who, for whom the obedience of all nations would be his, when this king came, he wouldn't come riding on shadow facts. It'll be Bill the Pony for him. King David was a great king. Half a dozen, a dozen nations in the, in the local region bowed down to him, to David. When the son of David comes, the prophecies all said, all nations on the planet will bow down to him. And the way you'll know is that it'll come on a donkey. That's what the prophecy said. Jesus knew that, and the crowds knew that, hence all the hosannas and the quoting scripture. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Jesus knew what he was doing. The crowds knew what he was doing. And Jesus knew that the crowds knew what he was doing. Everyone knew the donkey meant one thing, world domination. And Jesus did it deliberately. How is that not a statement? It's the most political statements you could make. He's forcing the issue. He insists on being recognized. I am the king, the son of David. And then in the next section, again, we see Jesus again forcing the issue. Verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. It's not Jesus meek and mild, is it? He walks into the temple of God and starts acting like he owns the place. Like he has the right to be a, a one-man Ofsted inspection team. And you get his verdict, then you? you get the report on the temple and the trustees, and you get it illustrated in what happens to the fig tree. Now, you may, you may have read that miracle of the fig tree and thought to yourself, oh, I'm not sure I really like this miracle very much. Um, not only is it the only destructive miracle that we get from Christ, it also seems, doesn't it, frankly, on first glance, like it's something of a temper, temper tantrum, doesn't it? Right? Because it says, verse 14, that it wasn't even the season for figs. So Jesus pronounces a curse on the fig tree for not producing figs when it's not even the season for producing figs. best answer I know is that there are, even today, different varieties of fig tree indigenous in Palestine. And of the different varieties of fig tree, there are late bloomers and there are early bloomers. And there are even a few varieties whose fruit comes at a completely different time of the year. be like us getting strawberries in January. be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, totally outside normal season. Which means that the real test of whether you're, you're expecting to find fruit on a fig tree is not whether it's in the uh, fig season per se. The real test is whether a tree is in blossom. If it's in leaf... You're expecting to see figs, even if it's not actually in the fig season, even if it's January. If it's in leaf, 
that's the sign there should be figs there. So Jesus is walking out of the city. He sees in a distance this tree, clearly got leaf, leaves on it. So he thinks, oh, he walks over. He expects him to find figs. Uh, all the external signs are there. It looks good from a distance. But when you're up close, there's no fruit, there's no substance. It's all show. It's all leaf. So what Jesus does is an object lesson. And it's an object lesson about hypocrisy. When you have all the external signs, all the trappings and the markers of real vital faith, good from a distance, but up close, no fruit, no substance, no power of godliness bearing fruit in your life. That's what Jesus found at the temple and its leaders. The temple looked jolly impressive from a distance. Chief priests and teachers of the law looked very impressive from a distance. But there was no fruit of the Spirit, no power of godliness. It was all sham, all leaf. Now in the Old Testament, the uh, nation of Israel was often pictured as a vine. Um, Isaiah 5, Psalm 80. Israel was a vine that was meant to produce good fruit, a fruit that would be for their own glory and also for the healing of the nations, for the, for the good of the world. The temple was meant to be a source of blessing to all nations. It was meant to be a source of blessing, but they've made it into a barrier to blessing. The court of the Gentiles, the place set aside so anyone from any nation could come and worship God. It was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. They've turned it into a heaving marketplace. Now, what do you do with a temple that's doing more harm than good? Well, first you give it a warning. Jesus did that already. He already cleared out the temple once at the beginning of his ministry. John chapter 2. But that greed and hypocrisy and ethnic vainglory had just grown right back. And so, like Leviticus 14 says, when a priest in the Old Testament times would inspect a house with poisonous mold, they'd go and inspect, inspect it the first time, give it a clean out, and leave to see. And if when they went back the second time, the poisonous mold was still there, then the house would be condemned and it'd be torn down. And here we have, don't we, a house that's been inspected twice by the great high priest, no less. The nations are still being excluded. The mold of greed and hypocrisy is still there, worse than ever. So what's the... What's, What's going to happen? That's why Jesus says in Mark chapter 13, he says, Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on top of another. Every one will be thrown down. The judgment on the fig tree is symbolic. It illustrates the judgment that is to come on the temple. Now, yes, there'll be a delay. Just like the, the fig tree didn't actually wither straight away, did it? didn't wither at the very moment Jesus cursed it. 
overnight, and then they came back, and it's withered. There was a, there was a delay. And in the same way, the temple was not torn down immediately. It wasn't actually for another 40 years. Not until AD 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed by a Roman army and the temple was completely flattened. Now I take it that's what verse 23 is referring to. And Jesus says, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, which mountain? Well, this mountain, the one they're pointing at, the one, they're, the one where the temple was this mountain will be swallowed up by the sea and as you might know in the old testament the sea often represented hostile nations isaiah 17 for instance psalm 65 jesus said it would happen and sure enough 40 years later it did happen within the lifetime of people he was speaking to in your generation it happened just like he said Now, whenever the Lord gives us a promise, when the Lord gives us a promise, that promise is meant to be a spur to our prayers. We're not to think, oh, well, the Lord has promised this, so it's going to happen anyway, so I'll just sit back and do nothing. Now, whenever the Lord promises something's going to happen, that should be a spur to us to pray extra hard for that thing to happen. Now, think of some of the promises that the Lord has made to us. He promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. Does that promise m- mean that we're meant to pray less earnestly for the health of his church, just because it's been promised? No. He promised that his kingdom would start small, small as a mustard seed, and that it will grow to fill the whole planet. He promised that the earth will be as full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Those things are certain, 100% certain going to happen. They're promises. But that's not an excuse for us to sit back and not bother praying for them. The fact that we're on the winning side is meant to spur us on to pray with extra earnestness. Get on our knees and pray your kingdom come. Not because we're worried that it won't, but we know that it is. We pray for what the king has told us to pray for. And, perhaps less comfortable, we pray against what the king has told us to pray against. I mean, no getting around it. Verse 23 is not a prayer for blessing, really, is it? Jesus made it clear here in Mark 13 uh, and in all the other Gospels that the temple, by this point, had become so corrupt so counterproductive to what it was always meant to be and to do that its fate was sealed. God has set himself against this now. And if God is against something, how can his people be for it? So this is not a... It's not, it's not that we get to go around throwing fireballs and curses at, you know, whatever we want, anyone who annoys us, who looks at us the wrong way. It's not saying that. It's not point and shoot. We only pray against what the king has told us to pray against. No more than that, but no less either. There are evils in this world. 
And if God is against something, how can we be for it? There are strongholds that must be demolished. Strongholds of darkness in here, for sure, first of all. But also strongholds of darkness out there. It really matters to God that his name is honoured. Honoured, not mocked and rebuked. It really matters to God what the church teaches publicly in his name. It matters to God how the elderly are treated and the unborn are treated. These are things God has told us, clear as day, in his word. Now, I hope it goes without saying that as 1 Corinthians 10 says, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. The church does not wield the sword. Jesus told his disciples to pray against the temple. To pray, he didn't tell them to try and set fire to it or plant bombs. When Peter did try and draw his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ commanded him to put it away. There are to be no no sub-Christian shortcuts in this. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. And yet, fight, we do. Our prayers are weapons that have divine power to demolish strongholds. It might take time. You remember it took how long? 40 years for this prayer to be answered. What have you prayed for for 40 years? Verse 24 is a promise to us, but of course it's not a promise, is it, that ends with the word overnight. Which is why it calls for faith. Why Jesus says in verse 22, have faith in God. Faith that is shown by persistence, the sort of stubborn persistence that Bartimaeus was commended for. See, when it says in verse 24, if you believe that you've you've received it, it will be yours. Now, plenty of folk read that and they think, well, it says, if I believe. I mean, how, how do I know if I believe, like really believe, like really, really believe, and there's not some sort of trace of doubt down there in my soul somewhere? How do I know? And so I try and sort of peel away all the layers and down into the depths of my soul to try and find it. But if we're all sinful, and we are, if we're all sinful, it's like looking down into a muddy lake. The deeper you look, the darker it's going to get. So don't do the, this, the, morbid, the morbid introspection thing here. That way madness lies. It's much simpler than that. The way you know you're praying in faith is that you're praying, still praying, day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out. It's easy to send up a prayer flare every, every now and again, isn't it? But week in, week out, year in, year out. It's not that every single prayer we pray must be perfectly pristine, pure, you know, none of us have ever prayed a prayer like that in all our lives now the real test of faithfulness faith in prayer is that 
40 years later, you're still praying, still stubbornly praying for what the king has told you to pray for or what the king has told you to pray against. So we're not to take the, ver- the promise of verse 24 as a sort of vending machine thing. You know, put in the right amount of faith, press the right buttons, and hey presto, out will come your winning lottery tickets every time. Christ is not promising us a vending machine. But he is promising us something, right? And just because some folk take this and they twist it into a sub-Christian prosperity gospel, a license to print money, just because they do that, let's not therefore, despite them, fall off the other side of the horse. As if these words meant nothing really at all, nice and safe, but pointless. We have a power that can move mountains. If you set yourself to listen to God and then to pray in tune with what he has said for however many years it might take, and if, verse 25, you do it without bitterness, without ego, without your personal pride polluting everything, if we pray in faith, who knows what God might do? Who knows what strongholds of darkness might be torn down? One's in here, for sure. One's out there. So verse 22, have some faith in God, and then let's go and get to work on those mountains. Yeah? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in giving us your word. We thank you for your spirit who teaches and applies this word to us. We pray that he would guide us into truth and guide us into action, action that pleases you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.